So we had a birthday party yesterday. Lorraine is five today. And uh, she had no surprise that her birthday was coming. I've been giving her practice spankings for days. Got to practice these things to get them right. So, so you're planning a, a surprise. You know, it, was a good, it, was, it wasn't a surprise it was her birthday. She, she, was, she knew she was having a birthday. She was getting presents. She didn't know about the bike that Bethany's had sitting in our garage for two weeks. <laughs> you know, everybody knew but her. Big surprise. Uh, you know, it, it was the way it was supposed to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you do everything right. You get the, the party. And the, the birthday girl didn't know, but everybody else knew. It was nice. It's not the way it is with Jesus' return. Uh, as far as Jesus is concerned, uh, his coming and his coming victory, and his coming victory, we all know. Is anybody here in doubt over whether Jesus is going to win? It's like, no, that's, that's kind of, we, we know that. Jesus is going to win. It's like, come on, give me, is this, is this a pass-fail thing? If I guess the right answer, do I go to heaven? Is it, you know, it's, it's like, uh, uh, it's, it's so easy because he tells us, he shows us, he explains it. Today's passage, we're going to see it laid out just as plain as could be. Uh, all we have to do is trust God, that what he says is going to happen. He hasn't failed yet. Uh, but yet, even though we know all this, and he tells us, and he shows us, somehow the way we live, it doesn't look like it. Sometimes, at least, it looks like we don't believe it at all. Like we hope we've chosen the right side, but we don't have any confidence in the way we live until that time. Today we're going to briefly discuss what the second coming is. Just, just kind of, we're, we're, we're starting to hit on this second coming thing today. We're going to briefly discuss that. We're going to see how Jesus is revealed at his second coming. And we're going to see the enemy defeated and just be reminded to trust in that, to live according to that outcome. So first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the second coming. A lot of things happen at Christ's second coming, when he returns to the earth. That's what the second coming is. When he came as a baby, that's the first coming. Then he comes as, a, as, a, as, as we see him today, that's the second coming. Well, one thing, he's going to conquer the armies uh, of the earth. Uh, he's going to win the battle of Armageddon. That, that famous battle, we all know the name. Every junior higher knows the name of Armageddon. Uh, he's going to come and he's going to win that battle. We all know that. He's going to cast the false beast, the, the, false, the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Okay, he, he's going to, that's how far we're going to get today, by the way, is, is the casting of these guys into the lake of fire. He's going to cast Satan into, the, into the, a bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's going to establish a millennial reign on earth. Uh, and we're, today we're just looking at the first part of that, uh, his, victory or, uh, his victory and his judgment over the beast and the prophet. But Jesus is coming again. He is coming to earth the second time, and he's going to win. And he's not going to be a lamb. You know, something happened to that lamb we saw uh, earlier on. In Revelation 5, we saw the scene around the throne. John is there, and he's, he's weeping because there's no one worthy to open the, the scroll. And, and someone says to him, stop weeping because the lamb, the lion of Judah, he didn't say the lamb, he says the lion of Judah is here. But when John looks to, to see this lion of Judah, he sees instead of a lion, he sees a lamb looking as if it was slain. And Jesus' first coming was as a lamb, peaceful, 
gentle, turning the other cheek. He was the sacrificial lamb who was slain for the sins of the earth. Uh, and in heaven before the throne, it is that sacrificial lamb who earned our salvation, who, who gained our salvation. It is that sacrificial lamb who, because of what he had done, had the right to open the scroll, to unseal the seven seals on the scroll because of his death, because of his sacrifice as a lamb. Jesus' purpose on his first coming unquestionably, undeniably was to give us salvation, to bring us salvation, to forgive sinners, to win sinners to God. That was his purpose. But his second coming is not to bring salvation. His second coming is to bring judgment on those who refuse the salvation that, that he, he brought with his first coming. His second coming is to purify the earth, to make it clean and right and ready for for, for his people to live there. He is going to live here for a thousand years and it's going to be a, a better world. His second coming will deal with those who sinfully refuse, stubbornly refuse to come to him. And so the Jesus we see here resembles much more closely the Jesus John saw in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we see this description of Christ. John is there. He is, he is uh, having this vision on the island of Patmos. And he hears a voice, and in verse 12, chapter 112, it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white and like white wool, like white snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of the roar of many waters. In his right hand he, saw, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Right? John was absolutely flattened by the vision of Christ, and that's the Christ, that, that, that's the, a similar vision of Christ to what we find here. Uh, he, is, he, he is revealing Jesus Christ. He is seeing Jesus Christ resembled. People seem to think, People seem to have this in their mind that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to be this lamb again. That he's going to be, you know, I know I didn't do it the way Jesus said, but I have my own reasons for doing it my way, and he will understand. I don't know if you've ever had someone say that to you, but I've had people say that to me. He will understand my position. Uh, he will have to respect my position. Uh, he's not coming as a lamb. He's not coming to be pushed and herded and moved to where you want him to be. Because he was gentle the first time, and when he was gentle, he wasn't that gentle, by the way. I mean, he was a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, but he would not be moved from the truth. He would not be moved from what was right. He would not be moved from what was pure and holy and good. Right? He wasn't a lamb who ever could be pushed around, but people have this impression of him as that. That's not the Jesus that is coming. He is coming in judgment, and he is Lord. He is coming as Lord. He will be Lord. And we have Jesus revealed in, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And, and I mean, just recognize, Revelation is about revealing Jesus. That's what the name means, okay? Revelation, revealing, it's revealing something, 
Okay? The question is, what is it revealing? Is it revealing the end times? Well, yeah, it is. Is it revealing uh, what God is doing with the earth? Yeah, it is. But that's not what the book is about. The book is about revealing Jesus. He is revealing Jesus to us. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is revealed to John. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he is revealed to the seven churches. In Revelation 4 and 5, he is revealed in heaven. And if you notice, if you read, go back and read chapter 5, when Jesus is revealed, the effect, the revelation of Jesus Christ had on those in heaven when they saw him revealed. He is something more than what they had seen before. In Revelation chapters 6 through 19, Jesus is revealed to the world continually, and the world refuses to do anything proper with that revelation. You'll be, and, and when I say he's revealed, uh, you, you can see it because it says, they, did, though they, they said, who will save us from the wrath of the Lamb? And they did not repent, right? They recognize it is Jesus who is doing it. They recognize it is him. They see he has the power. They see who he is, but they still don't repent. So he is revealed to the world as well. In Revelation 19, he is revealed in judgment. He is revealed in glory. He is revealed in power. He is revealed in the way he comes back to the planet. And, and verse 11 is just, just kind of go, what? What? Look at this. Uh, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. What? I know you horse lovers. You say, yes. Okay? I, I don't care that you say yes. I say, what? A horse? And Mike's got an exclamation point there. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. <laughs> a white horse? I'm so excited. A horse came from heaven. Right? That's not exciting to me. I'm, why is a horse the first thing mentioned? Uh, this Jesus, this is Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus riding the horse. If Jesus comes out riding a horse, are you excited about the horse? Or are you excited about Jesus? Because I don't care about the horse. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I think of Lori. Sorry. She's going to meet me at the door. <laughs> she's, she's shaking her head right now. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry for all you horse, uh, not for you, that sounds wrong. I'm sorry to all you horse lovers out there. Uh, but the, what is the thing about the horse? I, I, Jesus is coming to earth. He's coming in judgment. He's coming to make things right. And it talks about the horse, first thing out of his mouth. What is going on with this? It seems contrary to the theme. There is a theme going on through this passage, and it isn't about horses. It's about Jesus. And, and so what is going on here? And, and, and they're actually, I know you horse lovers think you know why, but you're wrong. <laughs> Let me go back to, to three different passages. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, we have the Antichrist, right? What does the Antichrist come out riding? Horse. A white horse, yeah. The Antichrist shows up riding, he's not called the Antichrist, he's, he's someone dressed in, and lo I looked and behold, a white horse, exclamation point, <laughs> and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. That's the Antichrist appearing, and he comes out riding a white horse. And I think, you know, last week I talked about the, the, the deliberate contrasts we find in Revelation. This is one of them. Uh, Antichrist rode a white horse. Jesus comes riding a white horse. It's not the same horse, right? There are lots of white horses out there. And Antichrist is trying to give an appearance of being holy uh, and pure and powerful, but he's not. So, so one answer would be to to answer back to what the Antichrist had done, to answer the white horse of the Antichrist. And, and I suspect if you compared horses, Jesus had a better horse. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, that, that's my guess. Uh, in Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, yeah, this actually, this Revelation 19 that we have here, 
because uh, we had 17 and 18 were kind of like an interlude talking about the, the, the prostitute in Babylon, and then we came back to New Jerusalem, or we will come back to New Jerusalem. We have the, the Antichrist, and we have Babylon, and those things. But, if, but this is still, if we take away that, that parentheses, that, that intermission, or whatever you want to call it, interlude, you go back to the events with the, the, the armies arriving for, for Armageddon. Right, uh, and so Revelation sixteen twelve to sixteen, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go along abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of Armageddon. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may go, not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so you have the armies of the earth. And picture, picture the modern armies of the earth. Picture the tanks, the weapons, the machinery, the, you know, the missile launchers, the, all the, you know, the, the massive hardware and armaments and, and armor and, and, and assault weapons and, and even just GIs in full gear, right? And then out of heaven comes a horse. <laughs> They're all masked with everything they have, and Jesus comes riding out on a horse, and guess which one is scared of which one? Because, tell you what, I'm with John. I'm falling down at Jesus' feet. You know what? I, I'm, I'm going to fall and, and, and lie like one dead before him. Because those armies, they scare me. And, and I'm not going to say, I mean, what can I say? Jesus scares me? Does it sound wrong for me to say that? Uh, believe me, this is a frightening Jesus we're talking about. This, this is an impressive Jesus, the kind that gives you uh, fear in the depth of your heart. And, and you find yourself... Oh, no, have I really trusted him? Oh, no, am I really there? You know, we should have fear like that sometimes a little bit more. Sometimes we, we actually live as if we think he's a lamb we can kick around. We have to get that straight, straight uh, and, and, and get it right. Uh, it's, it, the, the armies are, have to be a huge and impressive sight, and he comes out on a horse, and that's his weapon of war, choice of, choice of travel anyway. And, and I think it's, it's, he's answering. The, the earth has come on its, in, in, in its fashion to this battle, and this is how Jesus arrives in his, his fashion, and so it's the horse. But there's one more thing, and uh, you're going to find this in the Gospels, but I'm going to go back to Zechariah. Second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. And when I start reading this, you're going to say, oh, yeah, that's what he's doing. It's not an unfamiliar passage, even though you normally don't read it in Zechariah, because most of us, let's admit it, don't read Zechariah all that much. Right? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember the last time he rode into Jerusalem? The last time he was riding a donkey. And he was gentle, and he was meek, and he was bringing salvation. That's not what he's doing this time. This time he's coming on a horse. It's a white horse. It's an impressive horse. This is the horse you say, yeah, a king would ride that horse. This is not, not, oh my, what a shock that he would come this way. This is like, oh yeah, this is the way the king would come. 
And, and so this horse is, is actually, for all my mocking the horse, I apologize, <laughs> this horse is significant. And it's the first thing that, that we have in this description of Jesus. Then I behold, heaven open, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we have this description of him. He is faithful and true. Right? He is in, uh, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. Now for some people these are contradictory statements. How can he be faithful and true and judging righteously and making war? How can you judge? Because people think war is immoral. Well war on at least one side is immoral. But war on the other side may not be immoral at all. I'm not saying there is always good guys on both sides or either side of a war, but there, you know, if, there is, if there is bad being done, if there is a bad army, there'd better be a good army to, to, to respond to that. Uh, Jesus is not immoral. He's not bad by having war. War is sometimes a necessary thing, and it's not a contradiction. Uh, people try to say all war is wrong. They, you know, they, they lose, forget the fact that we have the liberty to say things like that because of a war that was fought, right? And, and, and we, we, you know, what are we looking at? We're looking at the 4th of July. What are we talking about? The War of Independence, the one that gave up, made us a country, the one that gave us the rights, the one that we go back and say, look at the Constitution, and we, 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 we pin our rights based on that. It was a war that, that gave us that. Uh, it's not a contradictory statement. Jesus is faithful and true. His judgments are faithful and true. His war is faithful and true. His eyes are flames of fire, and yes, he is angry. The world has rejected him. The world has rejected and persecuted and martyred his followers. Yes, he's angry. Yes, he's angry. Someone comes and smacks your kid. Do you stop and reason with that person? <laughs> you might reason with them afterwards. <laughs> you know, you sorry now? <laughs> Going to do it again? Yes, he's angry. His eyes are flames of fire. What's scarier than that is that he's not only angry, but he's just and right in his anger. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We, we forget that. We forget that. We act as if that's not true, as if those words aren't there. It's, it's, a, it's one of those, you go, that's in the New Testament? <laughs> yeah. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. His, his eyes are flames of fire when he comes back. Okay, what's more? On his head are many diadems. We see that down below. That's pretty easy. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And, and he is subject to no one but God the Father. He has a name that no one knows but himself. Now that one can kind of throw you for a little while. You go, okay, I don't know what that means. What's the point of having a name that no one knows, first of all? How are they going to call you to lunch? You know, there's, there's three names in here, right? There's, there's his, he is called the Word of God. Uh, his, his name is uh, 
Uh, it says he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, he is called in verse uh, 13, the Word of God. And then we have this name that no one knows but himself. So it's not like they can't, uh, people won't be able, we won't be able to refer to him and talk to him. If we say, hey, that's Jesus, can I have your autograph? I don't know if he'll be given autographs, but he'll know who we're talking about. It's not like we won't have a way to tell him, but he'll have a name that no one knows but himself. And, and what is this about? You know, and we're all going to have new names. And, and which I'm thinking, first of all, I think, uh, I think kind of logistically, how is that going to work? How many, do you realize how many words you have to have to have a different name for everybody? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like uh, how, how is that going to work? Uh, but but it's, it will, first of all. Uh, but more than that, each of our names will be appropriate. Each of our names will be appropriate. We will hear, when, when, when I always say, I want my name to be Steve, you know? Let, let all the other Steves be changed to something else and leave mine alone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But when I hear my name, it will be appropriate. I'll go, oh. And you will too. We'll recognize the rightness of whatever name he gives us. The, the names will have meaning. We talk about names. You know, they have the plaques of you have this name and it means this. And you have the plaque and it means this. Someone worked out my name to where Steve, Steve and Michael means crown of thorns. I thought, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> my name is, middle name is Michael, by the way. Uh, and, and so uh, is, we have names. They don't necessarily mean what, what they're supposed to mean. It's like you, you meet somebody and he's got a name and it means good guy, and he's a bad guy, right? They, they don't always mean what they're supposed to mean, but in heaven they will. So Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself. What is that saying about it? You know what? Jesus is being revealed through the book of Revelation. We are learning things about Jesus that we don't know from before. He is be, and, and, and as these things happen, and you know, there's one thing to hear them by, by word. There's one thing to read it and say, oh, I see it, oh, I understand. But it's another thing to learn by experience, and he will be revealed. But you know what? There is more to Jesus than we can ever take in. And his name is beyond our ability to grasp. He has a name that no one knows but himself because we can't even understand it. Jesus is being revealed, but as much as he is being revealed, we, we, there's still going to be more for us to learn. There's still going to be more for us to know. And I believe in all of eternity, we'll still just be going, wow. And recognizing there is more to him. And I think that's, I think that's what this means, that there's a name, uh, he's given a name, uh, that, or he has a name that only he knows. He is clothed in a robe, dripped, dipped in blood. And I think that's a re reference to the, the treading the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. That's a scary sight. And he is called the word of God and uh, you know, John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He is the Word of God. Uh, that's John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Also has some description of Jesus, I can't whip it off quite so well. Um. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And get this, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making uh, purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. And he is the, the exact representation of God. Well, what is a word? A word is a representation of a thing, a thought, an idea, 
right? Uh, a word is a representation. Jesus as the word of God is the representation of God. John 1, 14, uh, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld the glory of the Father, right? Jesus is the representation of God. He is the word of God. Uh, in Jesus, we have God revealed. Uh, that's who he is and that's what he does. Our, uh, what he does, by the way, he comes followed by the army of heaven and he strikes down the nations with his word. Uh, and, and Jesus' battle is, is going to be pretty... You know what I think of? I think of when, when he wrote in the dust with his fingers. You know, they, they were going to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus started writing in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote, but whatever he wrote, it had power. It had enough power to send all those guys packing, all the accusers packing, and went away. Whatever he wrote, the words... The word of God is powerful. It's by the word of God that he created the world. It's by the word of God that he's going to win this battle. And the enemy's defeated. Right? Verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Uh, then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was among, uh, sitting on the horse and against his army. That's why I said we go right back. That's why we went to Revelation 16 and went right back into this setting. Uh, and I saw the, the, them all gathered against the one, him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. That's the end of the war. <laughs> they gathered against him, and then he's just describing the aftermath of the war. There's no real war here to talk about. Uh, we went to, a few weeks ago to Rebel, uh, Zechari Zechariah 14, and we can read some more gruesome details of that battle, if you would like, because it's gruesome. It's, it's icky, uh, as he describes what happens to these people. Uh, sorry, Zechariah 14. Um, but, but this, is, this is the armies gathered together for the slaughter, and, and uh, that's all that, that, that happens as far as it's, he's concerned. Once he gets there, the battle is won, and it's won with a word. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who was in its presence, uh, had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Which, by the way, remember I talked about the, 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 the contrast, the intended contrast? You have the wedding supper of the Lamb. You have the supper. This is called the uh, God's Supper. Uh, Where, did I, where is that phrase now? Um, verse uh, 18, to eat the flesh of kings. I'm sorry, verse, verse 6, 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. It's another contrast. There's two suppers. You have your choice. Right? I, I, I can tell you which one I want to be at. Uh, I want to be a part of it. There, there's no great drama here. You know, there's no, there's no, oh no, I wonder how it's going to turn out. You know, this is like reading the book for the fourth or fifth time. You know, he's like, no, I know how it's going to turn out. I kind of enjoy the story, so I'm reading the book again. It's a good book, so I'm going to read it again. It still, still affects me. It still touches me. But, but uh, it's, it's, it's no drama. You know how it's going to turn out. The world thinks God is little enough that they can beat him. He is not little enough that they can beat him. He wins. He wins with a word. The armies are gathered, but they're gathered only for the slaughter. This is like bringing the cows into a corral. 
You know, it's, it's branding time. You bring the cows into the corral. You bring the calves into the corral, and, and you move them through the chute. It's, just, just, it's convenient. You get them to where it's handy. Uh, that, that's all that has happened here. The, the, the armies are gathered, uh, but, but uh, it, it doesn't accomplish anything for the army. For effectiveness in, in, in battle against God, it's, it's no more effective than livestock that are, that are herded together. Uh, and in verses 20 to 21, we find the beast and the false prophet, and they are thrown alive into the lake of fire which is kind of an interesting thing because I'm sure the first thing they do there is die. And then they get their new bodies and guess where they are? They, they've simply, they're there, same place, same experience, now in bodies that don't die. At a Bible prophet, he said, uh, we all get new bodies. Some of us are going to have glorified bodies and others will have asbestos bodies. <laughs> which, is, you know, they're not going to be destroyed, but they're not going to be glorious. And that's what these two are going to have. I presume they're thrown themselves, thrown in, and find themselves still there. And Satan's punishment, we'll look at that next week as we start looking at the millennium. But, but you know, the outcome is never in doubt. The outcome of this battle is never in doubt. Uh, today, the outcome is not in, in doubt. The battle hasn't happened yet. The armies haven't gathered yet. You know, we look at the weapons of mankind. We go, wow, what's God going to do in a, against an atom bomb? What's he going to do against a nuclear bomb? Come on, God, see what you can do with this. And God's like, I, mean, I, I don't know, you think that can hurt me? Today, the outcome is not in doubt. When the tribulation starts, it's still not in doubt. When the false prophet is persecuting the mar the, those who will be martyred, when he's persecuting those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, the outcome is not in doubt. The outcome is never in doubt. The victory Christ will have is never in doubt. Uh, if the outcome is never in doubt, why do we live as if the outcome was in doubt? It's not the outcome is in doubt, but we doubt the outcome. We, we live as if we can't trust God to win. And I'm not saying ultimately, I'm saying right now. We, live, you know, we, we come across some challenge in our lives. I, I read in a, uh, it was actually an essay, but it, was it talked about a lady who uh, was working for her, her uh, citizenship, right? She, she was trying to become a, a legal alien. She had, she'd been in the United States for some time. She's going through all the, the proper motions. And the lawyer, she, she lived in New York, and the lawyer told her, in Philadelphia, and the lawyer told her, it'll be easier if you say you, are, you live in New York than in Philadelphia. And so this godly Christian woman told that one lie because she didn't believe God could work it out now, she didn't trust, I shouldn't say she didn't believe God could work it out. Effectively, she didn't go through the thought motion of, gee, I don't think God can work it out. But she'd been committed to, to, to honesty and integrity all through up to that point. But when the lawyer told her, this will work better if you do this, she caved and did what the lawyer said. What's going on? She's not believing doing it right. She's not believed doing it God, what God's way will actually work out best. We do that. When we do that, we're saying we don't trust God to work it out in this situation. You know, here, no, I can't do that because I, I can't afford to. We're saying we can't trust God for the money. I can't do that because I'll lose this opportunity. We can't trust God to meet our needs. We can't. He wins. Every day in real life, we can trust him. And, 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 but we live as if we don't. You feel like you have to lie or it won't turn out. You, you feel like you have to cheat or steal or run or blame or compromise or fraud or whatever else you think you might have to do or it won't turn out right. 
unless you do that one thing or say that one thing. And we need to learn to see from heaven's perspective. Because God is victorious, we can always trust him. And if you say, I trust him for the big thing at the end, I just don't trust him for the little thing right now. (laughs) We need to learn to put it in those words. Because if we put it in those words, then it will help us to act in faith. If we don't put it in those words, all we're looking at is what we project the natural outcome of events to be. And based on what I expect the natural outcome of events to be, I have to do this or it won't work out. And by the way, how good at you, let's, let's go back to March Madness. Anybody here pick a perfect bracket? <laughs> We're not that good at projecting the future. We don't know how something's going to come out. But you know what we can do? We can determine what is the right thing to do. We can do that much. Trust God, do that thing. If we trust God, even when we th- things look like they're in doubt, then we will be able to remain faithful, and he will remain faithful because his very name is faithful and true, and he does not wander from that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful and true, and I, I thank you. Lord, I know you win the victory. Lord God, I ask you to give me the courage to live daily in confidence that you win the victory, that you win every victory, that you have never, ever lost. Lord Jesus, I ask for myself, ask for each one of us to live faithfully before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.